This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. We're very lucky, indeed we're privileged, to have with us tonight Eric Lichtblau, a distinguished journalist and author. After several years of investigative journalism at the LA Times, Eric moved on to the New York Times, was their lead investigative journalist covering the Bush Justice Department. Most recently, he's moved on to Washington, D.C., where he heads CNN's investigative journalistic unit, and God knows he's got a lot to do right now. In 2006, Eric was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for exposing the Bush administration's NSA's illegal domestic wiretapping program, and then wrote the highly acclaimed Bush's Law, Remaking American Justice. And just most recently, he's written The Nazis Next Door, How America Became a Safe Home, for Hitler's men. That's what brings us here tonight. The book is ever so timely. Sometimes, Deborah, it seems like the events of Nazism in that era is getting stale and old. It's 80 years ago. To me, recent events confirm it has lots of contemporary relevance. Our country today is ripped apart by a legal and political fight over whether refugees, victims of totalitarianism, can enter our country. We debate travel bans and extreme vetting, and we'll see a Supreme Court case near along that will rival Karamatsu. In this context, let's remember, our nation refused to admit refugees attempting to flee Nazi totalitarianism before the war, condemning many of them to their deaths. And afterwards, we were ever so parsimonious in granting visas to the victims of the greatest human rights abuse in history. But as Eric has exposed at the same time, somehow top Nazis, well-known, were admitted to the United States, the perpetrators got in, the victims were excluded, exposing yet another baffling contradiction that plagues our democracy. So please, with me, welcome Eric Lichtblau. Bill and I did not consult about my talk and his remarks, but I swear we must have done some sort of unconscious mind meld because uh, I, my mind is also on the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, and, and again, I, I'm, I'm a little... I think Bill must have like come and swept my notes away when I, when I wasn't looking, and, and he sort of took the first part of my talk. But I, I give it anyway because it's, because it's such an important topic. Um, you know, when, when I started doing the, the research and writing for my book, now almost five years years ago, there was no Syrian refugee crisis. Uh, you know, the civil war in Syria was, was just starting. Now we have, by the last count of the UN, nearly 5 million displaced refugees in, in Syria. You know, the horrible images of, of children washed ashore, of chemical attacks um, from the Assad regime. Uh, just a few weeks ago, my, my new employer, CNN, where I, I moved last month as, as the head of the investigative team, had a, a, a just horrible graphic report um, out of Syria from one of our foreign correspondents about the latest chemical attack where you can literally see people, you know, their, their lungs exploding, coughing their, la- their last breaths as, as they die. And there was a lot of debate. I had just gotten to the, to the network when, when that was about to air. There was debate. Do you, do you show photos like that, um, you know, on air? And they made the decision, I think the proper one, that that was something people needed to know about. It wasn't just a faceless uh, war crime, uh, chemical attacks on, on civilians, you know, these were people you could literally see them, you know, gasping for their last breath. And so that was a major report, which unfortunately did not uh, 
not to bring this to, to current events, as Bill might like, but it unfortunately got drowned out about an hour after it posted. The president fired Jim Comey. So no one, so no one saw that report because everyone was talking about Jim Comey to this day. And uh, that was a month later, we're about to hear from Jim Comey tomorrow. So, but the Syrian refugee crisis is has really been on my mind since I since I researched and wrote this book because there are such haunting parallels between between the two. Um, and you know, it, it may seem strange at first. It seemed like an odd parallel. You know, this guy's book is about the Nazis. You know, what? what does it have to do with, with the survivors um, or the victims of the Holocaust? As as horrible as their as their plight was, but the two really have everything to do with each other. I discovered um, in my research, um, as many horrible things as I came across in interviewing survivors and, and Justice Department officials who were chasing Nazis and and researching things in the archives. For all the horrible things, I think the most galling to me was the treatment of uh, of the survivors after the Holocaust, of the worst um, uh, human rights crisis and, and uh, refugee crisis to this day until the current Syrian crisis. Um, and to, you know, I, I realized in my research that to truly understand, you know, how maddeningly easy it was for, for Nazis, thousands of Nazis, to get into the United States after the war, you, you first have to understand how horribly difficult it was for thousands and thousands of the survivors to even get out of the very same concentration camps where they had been held. Um, and you know, we, we think of the liberation of the camps. Uh, we just celebrated, uh, what, the 70th anniversary a few years ago of the liberation of the camps. There were ceremonies at Auschwitz, et cetera. Um, and, you know, history remembers the liberation in, in sort of black and white, reel-to-reel movies. The Russians coming from the east, liberating Auschwitz. The Americans coming from the west, liberating Dachau. The Brits coming, coming upon Bergen-Belsen and liberating Bergen-Belsen. You know, we can almost picture the gates of the camps swinging open and the survivors flooding out to some joyous reception, you know, like, like trapped coal miners who were climbing to safety or a wrongly convicted prisoner walking free out of, out of the prison gates after 25 years behind bars. That's at least how, how I, as, as a generation born um, long after liberation, sort of, sort of thought of that before I, I started doing my research. The truth is, it was nothing like that. Um, it was this, this is sort of a a, um, a sepia image that we've created of the quote unquote liberation of of the camps. Um, you know, maybe some of us with longer memories remember the the difficulty that was dramatized in the in the best-selling book Exodus by Leon Uris in 1958. Uh, that told about the Jews getting to Palestine after the war and and fighting so hard to get there because the British wouldn't let them in. But what history, I think, has really completely forgotten, at least for my generation, and I think certainly for for younger generations. Um, was just how wretched the conditions were uh, for the people, the survivors in these displaced person camps, the Jews, the gypsies, the homosexuals, the communists, the other persecuted persons um, who, had, uh, who were put in the camps, um, and the euphemism that was used for these, uh, for these displaced person camps, which of course were really death camps and slave labor camps. So in- indulge me for a minute, if you will, while I read just, just uh, a few sections from, um, from the opening section of my book, because I thought that the, the treatment of the survivors, again, was so important and so overlooked in history and so central to understanding how the Nazis got here um, that I made it the very first chapter of the book. Um, that, that was, to me, the, the single most important theme of my research. First, cha- first chapter is called Liberation, Spring 1945, Fahrenwald Displaced Persons Camp Outside Munich. While the Nazis fled, their victims were left to languish. These were the lucky ones, hundreds of thousands of Jews, Catholics, gays, Jehovah's Witnesses, communists, Roma, and other quote-unquote parasites enslaved in Nazi concentration camps who somehow had managed to survive Hitler's genocidal killing machine. Yet even after Germany's defeat, the survivors remained in prison for months in the same camps where the Nazis had first put them to rot. The names of their jailers had changed, with the dark Nazi swastikas now replaced by the bright-colored flags of the Allied victors flying above the camps. But the barbed wire fences and armed guards still encircled the camps. 
They were in a post-war, post-war purgatory, living in horrific conditions that a high-level emissary of President Truman would compare to those imposed by the Nazis themselves. Yakov Bieber, a Jew who survived the Nazi purge in the Ukraine, was among the masses confined in the American DP camp at Fahrenwald. Quote, we felt like so much surplus junk, Bieber would write of his confinement, human garbage, which the governments of the world wished would somehow go away. Many thousands of the survivors did not leave the Allied camps, some not for months, some not for years, some not at all. Thousands died from disease and malnutrition even after Hitler's defeat. At Dachau, at Bergen-Belsen, and at dozens of DP camps like them, they remained jailed inside the walls that Hitler had erected. With the survivors surrounded by the stench of death and squalor, the liberating Allied forces, led by General Dwight D. Eisenhower, would not allow them to leave. The world didn't know what to do with them. So um, when I was... uh, researcher for um, about six months at the Holocaust Museum. Um, I spoke with a researcher who specialized in, in Jewish music. This was a niche of hers. She looked at music that was, um, that was performed and even originated by the Holocaust uh, survivors in the camps. And she was doing a fellowship at the museum at the same time as I was, and I listened to her play recordings after the war of these heartbreaking Yiddish songs that were sung at the DB camps by the children and later recorded in New York City. Um, now, my Yiddish is limited to, to two or three words, but uh, I'll try this in English. This was from one of the songs. Where can I go? Who can answer me? Where can I go to when every door is locked? Now, here's Jacob Bieber again uh, from Bergen-Belsen talking about the way they were treated months and even years after the war in those camps. A general malaise was growing as we realized how indifferent the world was to our tra- tragedy, Bieber wrote of his experience. Soon we began seeing men and women who had survived the worst tragedies imaginable during the war years suddenly killing themselves, often by hanging. Such events added to the news that Palestine remained closed to us, guarded by British soldiers who were turning away DPs by the thousands. This only added to our gloom. Now, things were so bad at the camps that word began to filter out across the Atlantic to Jewish groups in the United States in late 1945, early 1946, about how horrible the conditions were. Politicians didn't want to believe it at first. This couldn't be true that we had just liberated these camps and people were dying from malnutrition and and even violence. Um, But the complaints grew so loud and so hard to ignore that President Truman had to finally appoint the dean of the law school at at University of Pennsylvania, Earl Harrison, to go over and inspect the camps to find out um, whether these complaints that were circling back to Washington could really be true or not. What he found should shock the conscience even today. As matters now stand, Harrison wrote to Truman in his final report, we appear to be treating the Jews as the Nazis treated them, except that we do not exterminate them. How could this have happened? How could it be that after fighting one of the worst genocidal killing machines in history, after vanquishing the enemy, that we could let their victims, uh, up to 200,000 victims, literally starve to death in decrepit conditions in the same camps that the Nazi has had put them? Well, to answer that question, I think you have to look, unfortunately, at the very real issue of anti-Semitism. Uh, And you also have to look at a man now regarded as a war hero. He was profiled in a book just a couple of years ago by Bill O'Reilly, George S. Patton. Patton, shown here on the right with General Eisenhower at a DP camp, touring the DP camp, was the commander of the U.S. zone in post-war Germany. He ran the DP camps. He was a war hero, of course, old blood and guts, they called him. He was also, it turns out, a raving anti-Semite. As I was doing my research at the Holocaust Museum, I came across the handwritten journal that was kept by General Patton. Listen to what he had to say in his journal after Earl Harrison sent that blistering report to Truman comparing the DP camps to the Nazi concentration camps. So after uh, the report to Truman came out um, from Harrison talking about how horrible the conditions were, you would think that Patton might have 
um, you know, perhaps done something to alleviate the suffering, the conditions, the, 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 uh, the scarce food, the horrible living conditions, Jews who were literally bunked side by side with their Nazi captors. He didn't. He was furious. This is what he wrote in his journal, that handwritten journal. He wrote, Harrison and his ilk believe that the displaced person is a human being, which he is not. And this applies particularly to the Jews, who are lower than animals. Laying bare the rabid anti-Semitism that infected the American refugee effort, Patton complained of how the Jews in one DP camp with, quote, no sense of human relationships would defecate on the floors and live in, filthy, in filth like lazy locusts. He told of taking General Eisenhower, seen here, to tour a makeshift synagogue that the Jews in the camp had set up to celebrate the holy day of Yom Kippur. We entered the synagogue, which was packed with the greatest stinking mass of humanity I have ever seen. Patton wrote. This was Eisenhower's first glimpse of the DPs, Patton said, so it was all new to him. Quote, of course, I have seen them since the beginning and marveled that beings alleged to be made in the form of God can look the way they do or act the way they act. Patton's anti-Semitism infected the operations of the DP camps, and it was made worse by the preferential treatment that Patton gave to the German POWs, the Nazis who we had just defeated. He got in hot water, in fact, with General Eisenhower for using Nazi officers as administrators to run these same DP camps, lording over the Jews, giving them orders despite Eisenhower's own orders to denazify these U.S.-controlled zones. But Patton said, if you need these men... Use them and don't worry about anything else. And his officers did just that. I tell the story in my book of General Patton visiting one of the DB camps where some of the Germans' uh, famed scientists and rocket engineers were being held. It's a telling scene that I came across in some military documents that I got through the Freedom of Information Act. At the German DP camp, General Patton went looking for one of the more prominent prisoners, General Walter Dornberger who ran the Nazis' famous V-2 rocket program and was the boss of the even more famous Werner von Braun. Patton walked up to him and said, are you that guy who was in charge of the development of the V-2 rockets? Jawohl, Herr General, the imprisoned Dornberger answered. Patton pulled three cigars from his pocket and handed them to the Nazi general. My congratulations, Patton said. I couldn't have done it. So what did the disgraceful treatment of the Jews in the DP camps after the war have to do with the Nazis who actually made it into America? That's what my book was mostly about, after all. Well, the treatment of the survivors and the, and the flight of the Nazis had everything to do with one another, and it came down, unfortunately, to basic math. Visas to America were a precious commodity in those early months and years, with some 7 million people left stateless in Europe after the war, even more than the 5 million Syrians today. Only 40,000 visas were issued in the first three years after the war, and the immigration policies were stacked against the Jews in trying to get those precious few. This is what a Senate lawyer wrote when he was trying to limit the number of survivors allowed into America. The Jews, quote, do not desire to work, but expect to be cared for. Those visas were a golden ticket out, and for every Jew who was kept in the brutal camps and denied an exit to America, that meant one more visa available for someone else. In those early years after the war, fully 40% of all the visas in America went by design to refugees from the Baltics, the so-called captive states that had been occupied by the Nazis during the war. Hundreds of thousands of Lithuanians, Estonians, and Latvians came. They were, as one policymaker put it, quote, of good stock and good breeding. Now, no doubt the vast majority of those hundreds of thousands were, in fact, uh, were in fact refugees who had just escaped one tyrannical, uh, tyrannical occupying force, the Nazis, and were looking to come to America as a place of refuge, the, the beacon of light that we had always promised to be. And so those, those Baltic refugees came. But along with them came thousands of Nazi collaborators, not scientists, not Werner von Braun types, but just your everyday refugees who who happened to be high-level Nazi collaborators. They came to America in Queens, in Boston, in Baltimore, in Washington, in Chicago, in Los Angeles, here in San Diego. As Jakob Riemer and Carl Linnis showed, this was not hard to do. You identified yourself as a POW during the war, or a farmer, or a civil servant, or you simply put down a fake name. 
Antonin Artukovich got into America using an alias and lived in Southern California up by Seal Beach uh, for more than 30 years before anyone questioned his identity. If he'd used his real name, immigration officials might have realized that Antonin Artukovich was a top, top cabinet minister in Nazi-occupied Croatia, and he was the man who signed the racist and anti-Semitic decrees rounding up hundreds of thousands of Jews, Serbs, and Romas. But of course, they didn't look, and he was let in with his brother and lived a quiet life for years and years before any scrutiny fell upon him. There was little chance of getting caught, since the post-war refugee system in Europe was so overwhelmed and so inept. Think of the flawed rollout uh, a few years ago of, of Obamacare or some other government bureaucratic, uh, bureaucratic um, falling out, and, and you'll imagine uh, the, in the intense difficulties faced by Oh, thank you. The intense difficulties faced by the allies in trying to, um, trying to find places to go, even for those refugees who were ultimately granted visas. So thousands of Nazis came in quietly through this back door, disguised simply as, several, uh, as, as someone else. Then there were several, several other thousand who came in through the front door, essentially invited by the U.S. government, by the Pentagon, the CIA, and the FBI. I mentioned General Dornberger, the head of the Nazis' V2 program. He and some 1,600 Nazi scientists came to America after the war in a secret program called Program Paperclip. It was all about the Cold War, and the idea was to keep pace with the Soviet scientists. Officially, the scientists we brought over couldn't allow, weren't allowed to be, quote-unquote, ardent Nazis, but this was a fig leaf, as the name suggests. In fact, these were high-ranking Nazi officials, often involved in building rockets on the backs of slave laborers. In fact, I, I was just honored to meet uh, the wife of one of the men who um, had worked at, uh, at Dora, and she was telling me his, his story, um, and it's, it's an honor to hear that. Um, so Dor Walter Dornberger and, and Werner von Braun, they built Hitler's rockets at a camp called Dora Middlewerks in Nordhausen. They didn't build the rockets themselves, of course. The slave laborers did that. Most of the prisoners were POWs, not Jews, surprisingly, for the most part, but French, French Russian, Pole, and others. And the Nazi Nazis literally worked them to death building their rocket ships. The more rockets that Hitler wanted uh, for bombing London and Antwerp, and the faster he wanted them, the more prisoners died doing it. Some 10,000 slave laborers are estimated to have died there of disease, malnutrition, exhaustion, and worse. If workers didn't perform their tasks or were suspected of trying to sabotage the rockets, they faced the worst fate of all. They were hanged from a giant construction crane in the middle of the factory. Other workers were made to watch as a lesson to them of what would happen if they didn't follow orders. This was the place that these quote-unquote non-ardent Nazis ran before they came to America and set up shop in Alabama. Unlike the discovery of Dachau and other camps, Americans didn't hear much about the liberation of Nordhausen, the slave labor factory, and I suspect that was by design. U.S. military officials were not anxious to let the Soviets or Americans know that they were raiding the place, not only of its hardware parts and blueprints, but of its scientists and engineers as well. Let me show you one of the, uh, the Nazi scientists who ran Nordhausen. Uh, this is a man by the name of Arthur Rudolph. He was the head of rocket production at Nordhausen, and he reported directly to Werner von Braun. He came to the U.S. with the other paperclip scientists and became one of the top engineers in the Saturn rock, uh, space program. Uh, decades later, in the 1980s, prosecutors confronted him about what had really happened under his watch at the factory at Nordhausen. Rudolph said he just built rockets. The prisoners, as far as he knew, were well-treated, he said with a straight face. He said he was just doing his job. Here's another scientist from Nazi Germany, Alberta Strugholt. He was one of the doctors in the paperclip program. You probably have not heard about the doctors. You might have heard a little bit about the rocket scientists, Werner von Braun, of course, being the most famous. But the doctors were equally important to the operation and equally grotesque in the means that they used to carry out their practice. 
there were three dozen doctors brought just to San Antonio um, in 19, late 1945, led by this man, Dr. Roberta Struggled. What Werner von Braun was to rocket scientists, Strughold was to space medicine. He was a revered scientist in Texas, the father of space medicine, they called him. His job was to keep pilots alive in space, U.S. pilots, uh, in the changing atmosphere. And he was doing it long before he got to Texas. In Germany, he and the Nazi doctors under him ran and oversaw grisly medical experiments on prisoners in Dachau and elsewhere, even children, to see what the body could withstand in space and in high altitudes. They would send children into a flight simulator, not unlike the one you see with him here in Texas, and subject them to sudden, violent changes in altitude. Some died. Many became sickened and and endured incredible pain. Other prisoners were made to drink putrid seawater until they vomited or died. The idea was to see during the war how the Nazis could keep their own pilots alive once they crashed into the sea. Many of them were dying from drinking the putrid seawater. They wanted to see how they could purify it, so they did horrible human experiments on those prisoners at Dachau to see um, how they could keep them alive. The ones that died, those were the guinea pigs. Again, many of these prisoners died all in the name of Nazi scientists. You could make the case, I suppose, and some have, that morality aside, the scientific expertise that the Nazis brought to America outweighed the obvious baggage they brought with them. If it wasn't for von Braun's work on jet propulsion and Strughold's theories on space medicine, the U.S. might never have landed on the moon in 1969 ahead of the Russians. This is true enough, certainly, and immoral or not, the, re- the recruitment of the Nazi spies brought the United States clear technological arguments, uh, technological breakthroughs, the arguments go. But there's another group of hundreds of Nazis who were also aided and protected by the U.S. government. And you can't even make the, well, it was worth it argument with this group. They are, in my mind, the most insidious group of all the, refu- of all the Nazi refugees who got into America. These were the Nazi spies used by the CIA, the FBI, and U.S. intelligence agencies as anti-Soviet assets in Europe, the Middle East, Latin America, and yes, here inside the United States itself. The thinking was that no one hated the Soviets more than the Nazis, and that the United States needed to exploit their technological advantage. This was the thinking of people like J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI, and here you see Alan Dulles at the uh, um, at what was originally the OSS, who you see here with uh, with President Kennedy. Um, Dulles wanted to put the, the Nazis' hatred of the Soviets to use by making them Cold War spies and informants. Dulles, in fact, started dealing with the Nazis even before the war was over. I tell the story in the book of how Dulles met a few months before the end of the war uh, with a Nazi general, Karl Wolf, who you see here with Himmler, um, who was a top SS man to Himmler, his chief of staff, in fact, at one point, and a key architect in designing the train and the railway system that would take millions to their deaths. Before the war was over, Dulles came up with a secret plan to try and infiltrate Nazis and use them as spies against the Soviets, and he recruited Karl Wolf, the man you see here. In fact, they met at a secret meeting about four months before the end of the war when it was clear already to the Nazis that they were going to lose and they were looking to save their own scalp. They had a meeting in Zurich, and they shared a bottle of scotch uh, by the fireplace. Dulles would later write in secret cables that Wolf and his deputies in the Nazi party were, quote-unquote, moderate Nazis. That's his word, who could help America. And he protected Wolf from war crimes charges for years after the war. He lived a, a gilded life for a while in uh, Bavaria in what was supposedly a, a, a POW camp. But he had use of his own boat. They even let him carry his own gun. And he complained, in fact, to Dulles years later that he uh, had lost all his savings during the war and he was entitled to reparations. He might have wanted to see Bill if he was uh, if he was so in the mood from the United United States for his poor treatment, given all the help he had given them. And ironically, it was only the Germans years later in the 1960s who prosecuted Wolf for war crimes, not the United States, which had used him as a spy, which had paid him thousands and thousands of dollars and which had protected him from war crimes charges at Nuremberg. 
Now, in, in those years, there were at least, by my count, a thousand Nazi spies working for America in the decades after the war, doing everything from monitoring Soviet, Soviet rail lines in Eastern Europe to giving briefings to top CIA officials in Washington. So unlike the technology that von Braun and Nazi engineers brought to America, much of the information that these Nazi spies were giving us and we were paying them for turned out to be essentially worthless. Uh, I spent weeks at the National Archives in, in College Park, Maryland, going through these declassified intelligence files um, on the Nazi spies, and their value to the U.S. was practically non-existent. It should surprise no one that the ex-Nazis, once they went to work for the United States, turned out to be liars, thieves, and drunks. Some, in fact, were Soviet double agents, believe it or not, who were paid by us and then again by the Soviets to peddle back disinformation to us into the 1950s and 1960s. And this was a pattern that continued in the 1970s. I, I came across documents from the 1980s and 1990s indicating that the CIA had sent material to Congress covering up its own tracks in using these spies. Um, some of them were still alive and living in, in uh, Washington and elsewhere in those years, and the Justice Department had begun going after them, as I'll talk about. And the CIA did everything it could to whitewash their records and distance themselves from these men into the 1990s. So here's Otto von Bolschwing. Um, he was a CIA spy in the 1950s, though not a very good one. He was once on a train in Austria in 1953, and he lost a suitcase that was filled with top-secret documents that he was supposed to deliver for the United States to another covert agent. He got his own satchel mixed up with another passenger's, and he opened the bag when he got to Hamburg, and he realized that instead of spy photos and top-secret documents, there were pajamas and a shaving kit. Now, he didn't get fired. Instead, the CIA simply relocated him and his family to New York as what they called a quote-unquote reward for his CIA service and in view of the innocuousness of his Nazi war crimes. Now, when we say innocuousness, that's certainly an odd choice of words because von Bolschwing was a top aide to this man, Adolf Eichmann. This was his boss. He was, in fact, credited or more accurately blamed for coming up with the white papers that ultimately became the final solution. He was an early Nazi loyalist um, as both an operative, a propagandist, and almost a, an academic inspiration who wrote of the Jews as a, as a second-class citizenry for a time he talked of, of forcing them out of Germany uh, into Palestine before the start of the actual Holocaust. But once, um, once more severe and, and grotesque methods were developed, he was at the front of the line in proposing um, all sorts of, of uh, means of making the lives of the Jews, as he, as he put it in one paper, as miserable as humanly possible. Now, in one paper, he talked of what he called the Jewish problem. And he said that if Germany was to finally get rid of its Jewish problem, it needed to resort to extreme means, every means possible to make the lives of the Jews as uncomfortable and miserable that they would either be forced to leave or would simply, would simply die through grotesque means. Now, there are... There are other stories um, throughout the book of, uh, of Nazis who came to America who lived out their lives. I'll tell you one more, and then we can probably go on to questions, because, yeah, I think we're right about time. So one other one whose story I found just remarkably grotesque was this man, Alexander Lelakis. But Alexander Lelakis uh, was for years an encyclopedia salesman in Massachusetts. You see his, his naturalization photo on the right. Looks like a very nice man. He was Lithuanian. He had contacts throughout the Lithuanian community in Massachusetts and elsewhere, and he sold encyclopedias in Lithuanian to fellow emigres and lived a quiet and fairly unremarkable life in, in Worcester, Massachusetts, in, in central, uh, central Massachusetts. Now, what wasn't said at that time was what he had done in Lithuania uh, while he was a top collaborator for the Nazis. He was, in effect, the police chief um, of uh, 
in Lithuania who was responsible for keeping law and order, which of course was, was a euphemism then and perhaps now, I won't get into that, for suppressing minorities, mostly Jews but other groups too. And when the Nazis invaded Lithuania in 1938, you see him there on the left in his police uniform, he was the one who was eager to round up thousands and thousands of Jews uh, and essentially sign their death warrants um, by sending them to jails and then turning them over to the Gestapo or to the Eisengruppen or, or to other uh, Nazi units. And many of them would ultimately take and be, be marched to their deaths in a death pit um, uh, that was called Panerai, where they were simply gunned down. This was in the years before the gas chambers, before the Nazis had developed their even more sophisticated means. Um, they were told that they were just being relocated, and instead thousands and thousands of Jews with Lalekas's signature on their warrants uh, were marched to their deaths. And Lalekas lived with no, no remorse, as far as I could tell, uh, in, his, in his file. I talked to his family, um, and he was one of the most recent ones, in fact, to be prosecuted by the United States after we finally um, started taking our Nazi problem seriously. That happened in the 1980s, after um, a number of Jewish groups and members of Congress, including Elizabeth Holtzman, said, wait a second, we have Nazis living here in America, Nazi refugees, high-level Nazis, and no one is doing anything about it. And at first, this met with sort of disbelief, sort of like the, the horrible conditions of the DP camps. You can't believe that. There aren't Nazis in America. Um, and the ones that we know about, Werner von Braun down in Huntsville, Alabama, or Arthur Rudolph, or uh, Hubertus Strughold in San Antonio, they weren't ardent Nazis. They were okay. They, they, you didn't need to worry about them. Um, but under pressure from Congress and Holtzman and others uh, and Jewish groups, uh, Congress finally in 1979 approved what became an incredibly important measure to create uh, what was called the Office of Special Investigations within the Justice Department and finally take our Nazi problem seriously. And they opened hundreds and hundreds of investigations. Remember, this is, this is now, what, uh, 35 years after the war. These were men who were at that point in their, many of them in their late 50s, 60s, some in their early 70s. There were already people at that stage, at that point, on the other side of this debate. Pat Buchanan was probably the most uh, vocal among them, saying, these guys are too old. This was so long ago. Let it go. What are we doing creating a whole Nazi hunting unit within the Justice Department? And this became a furious political issue during the Reagan administration, with Pat Buchanan leading the way. Um, and in fact, uh, there, were, there were legal, um, there, there were endless years of litigation before the Justice Department was finally allowed to begin deporting, de first denaturalizing and then deporting people like Lalekas. Um, but proving that they were Nazis was only half the problem because uh, what you had at the same time was that you needed countries that were willing to accept them. And this is true today, too, with deportations, that you can say you're going to kick them out, but until a country says they're going to accept them, you, they are basically stateless and remain in the United States. In fact, um, there is, uh, as far as anyone knows, one gentleman, I use the word loosely, living up in Queens, who, who I met, who has been denaturalized, but no one will take him back, Germany or any other country. And he's been living um, on the second floor of sort of a ramshackle apartment in Queens um, for eight years now. And he will probably die there. He was 93 years old, and he was a, he was a guard um, at, uh, uh, at Bergen-Belsen, um, who, like all the others, shows no remorse or no sign of, of contrition over their role, but um, has has positioned himself as the victim of, of political persecution. Um, and as a guard, he was just doing what he was doing. Um, that was the message that we heard from the Nazis over and over again. This was war, and we did what we had to do. I took my orders. I did my job. In fact, the deeper you look, the more you, the, the more you realize just how hollow those explanations were, because these were men like Alexander Lalekas or Arthur Rudolph or even Werner von Braun, who really gleefully and eagerly um, executed their orders, in some cases even gave the orders um, in collaboration with the Nazis, wearing the Nazi uniform, um, and uh, to say that they were 
just doing their job is to really to um, to hold up to ridicule the plight of uh, of millions of Holocaust victims. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. So, you know, one of the things I found so striking when reading your book was our government's willingness to not just overlook but to hide evil in the name of fighting communism. And I'm wondering, do you see any dangers of our government doing the similar things in the name of fighting terrorism? <laughs> I, I have thought about that, and, and a clever segue to try and get me to talk about current political events, which I'm sure Bill will like. Well, well, first of all, I need to say that the questioner and I just met, although we've known each other for years online, because his name is Eric Lischblau. And so we've never met. He came down just for this talk, although he, his, his first name is E-R-I-C-H. So we sometimes get each other's emails, and, and I think he's claimed credit for some of my stories. <laughs> He's, he's a lawyer, and I've tried to claim some of his judgments, but that hasn't, hasn't worked out. So I got to meet the other Eric Lishbaugh for the first time tonight. Uh, so, you know, are we doing this in the name of terrorism? I, I fear that, that we'll find out in, in 10 or 20 years that, that we have done that, um, that certainly we know that there are, um, well, the last... 10 or 12 years, al-Qaeda operatives that we have developed as informants, you know, with horrible, hideous pasts um, in, in, in the Middle East mainly. Um, ISIS, that is probably going on now, you know, we, we, just, don't, we just don't know about it. Um, and I think there is, there is certainly this mindset, you know, going, going back to, to Alan Dulles, you know, that if you are fighting the enemy, whether whether it's whether it's the Soviets after the war in the Cold War or the war on terror, that sometimes you get your hands dirty and you need to to um, you know have some unsavory cohorts to win the war. And there's certainly some truth to that. Uh, the lengths that that they went to in in the Cold War with the Nazis, I, I found grotesque and, and to be honest, um, completely, as, as I said in my remarks, completely unhelpful in the Cold War, um, sometimes counterproductive. So, um, yeah, sometimes you have to get in bed with bad guys. Um, but, you know, boy, I, I, hope that we're, I, I hope that someone's not writing a book like this one in, in 10 or 20 years about guys we're using now from in the war on terror. Thank you. Thank you. So I have a question. Um, yes. You talked at the beginning of the book about the, the similarities you see within the, Syri the Syrian refugees and the Jewish refugees. Yes. So I'm going to play devil's advocate with you for a second. Sure. Go for it. Okay. Um, you were talking also about the, the, the Balkan states and how there was, it was very easy for yes. people, the Nazis and the people in the Croatia and Lithuania, for them to sneak Hundred, in. Hundreds, hundreds of thousands. Not even sneak in. I mean, you know, get, get visas because we, right, we wanted them. the Nazis yes. and the Nazis the people to sneak in among to them. Sneak in among yes. them. Yep. So don't you think that at the same time it's easy for ISIS people and people like that to sneak in within the refugees of the Syrians at the same time that they're doing that? That, that is the fear, sure. I mean, you know, that's what we're going through now with the litigation over the so Muslim, a, Muslim ban, yes. As a devil's advocate, I'm not Sure, no, 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 I, I, look, that's, that is a legitimate fear, um, a legitimate concern. Uh, you know, we have all sorts of vetting measures. The reality, I think, is that that, that um, has hardly ever happened in the first place for all, you, you know, we've now had a whole string of terror attacks in, in Europe, unfortunately. We've had going back, what, a year and a half or so here. We've had Orlando and San Bernardino um, and uh, Times Square and a, f and a few others, not as bad as Europe lately, knock on wood. But almost none of those attacks were carried out by Syrian refugees. I don't have the data at my fingertips, but there, uh, George Washington University has, has, has a good model on this, and, and um, uh, Fordham University also has studied it. I mean, it's it's the overwhelming majority of okay, the, of the terrorists. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's a legitimate. No, look, none of us want, none of us want you know the ISIS operative to get in as a Syrian refugee. That, and I'm not talking here. I'm just thinking all over Europe and sure, and sure, and that's why we've that that's a main, if not the main reason that we've seen, you know, Brexit and, and what's going on in Europe right. with with harsh crackdowns. There is a an understandable fear. Bombs go off and we get scared. That's human nature. And what do we do to stop it? Unfortunately, the reality is that many of these, almost all of these cases, again, I don't have the data at my fingertips, 
in both the U.S. and Europe have been, you know, this breed of homegrown terrorism right. who are either either born in the United States, yeah, or or have come here at a young age. Um, you know, these aren't the guys at a at a displaced persons camp right now in Turkey trying to get out of Syria. Right. Because first of all, they're not getting it at all. I mean, you know, if you remember, uh, what a year or two ago, um, Obama proposed allowing ten thousand. Yeah, oh, no. which, which, yeah, which seems like you know a, a drop in the bucket, obviously, when you're talking about millions of refugees. And even that didn't go through. That was blocked by Congress because of the fear and, and maybe some legitimate, some Islamophobia-driven. That it was not. I, I hear rumblings in the. In no, 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 don't, no, no, no. I, I no. You ask. You ask a real and legitimate question. Yes. Okay. Uh, and I think everyone worries about that. I think certainly are there those in Washington where, where I work who have fanned the flames, you know, for political ends? Uh, you know, yes, I, I think the answer is obvious that yes, that, 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 that they have made that fear into much more than it is in, in reality in terms of the danger. Of they have, yes. Yeah, so, but it's an excellent question. Thank you. You know, I find your discussion of the impact of the Cold War and anti-communism on what happened very interesting. When we brought the lawsuits for the victims of the slave and forced labor situation against the big German corporations like BMW, Volkswagen, Daimler-Benz, Bayer, and the others, mm -hmm. we discovered that when the war ended, many of the big executives and directors were imprisoned in Germany initially and uh, were going to be prosecuted, and there was going to be restitution made to a lot of the workers. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Cold War just overwhelmed all of that. Mm -hmm. There was a need to reindustrialize and strengthen Germany. And a lot of these very perpetrators, they not only didn't suffer any penalty, they were put back in those corporations right. and led big, respectable lives. So right. it's part of your same narrative. Yes. Well, and, and, and along those lines, the irony is that that, that some of the first real prosecutions came in the late 1960s and early 70s by the East Germans, by the communists, you know, the bad guys, the enemies. Um, and they went after, uh, obviously, Nuremberg immediately after the war was the huge one. But then there was a lag of, of 20, 25 years when really nothing was done against any of these perpetrators who had gotten away. You went to Argentina or Bolivia or the United States. And then the East Germans went after a bunch of them, the, the, the business side people who had financed um, you know, the death centers, the, the operatives, et cetera. Um, and that was seen by the U.S. as just sort of political, um, political persecution because these were the communists going after the anti-communists. And, and even then in the 1970s and 80s when the U.S. started finally going after some of these guys, that was in Inevitably, the defense was that these were being these people were people being politically persecuted because they were anti-communist and and not really not really Nazis. So the the, the Cold War politics hung over, you know, really hung over all all of this for years. And in fact, uh, the the East Germans um, considered prosecuting Werner von Braun. Um, and on the eve of the moon landing in 1969, he had to give an affidavit. The East Germans um, had gotten uh, had subpoenaed him because they wanted to know what did you do at that um, at that uh, rocket slave labor factory at uh, at Nordhausen um, with uh, with Arthur with Arthur Rudolph. This is Arthur Rudolph who ran the, the program at the uh, the V two factory, the slave labor camp. And they wanted to talk to von Braun because von Braun had been there, had toured the site over and over again. He was the guy, you know, von Braun. On the one hand, for those of you old enough to remember, was on Sunday mornings on Disney as the man who was going to take us to the Mars. He was this dashing, good looking man. Do I have a photo of von Braun? I guess I know von Braun. Um, you know, who, who talked about taking us to space. But in 1969, just as we were about to land on the moon, the, the East Germans improbably got the authority to subpoena him and force him to talk about what he knew. And the U.S. fought this. They did not want their star scientists subjected to this kind of scrutiny. And they managed to avoid making him go to, to, uh, to East Germany, which is, I think, where they originally wanted to do it. Instead, he did it in New Orleans. That was considered the safe ground. That was the safe haven. And so, of course, he said, you know, I knew nothing. That's always the defense. So in closing, you know, I don't want to leave, um, um, I don't want to leave someone out of the, 
out of my story because I have so many villains, but one of my heroes was this guy, Chuck Allen, um, who I'd never heard of before I started my my research. And I, I really found him an, an inspiration. He was a left-wing journalist in the 1960s. That's not why the left-wing part is not why he's the inspiration. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Uh, but he was writing about Nazis in our midst. Um, you see right there in the headline, way before anyone else even knew it was a thing. In the early 1960s, he produced this 42-page pamphlet um, for, uh, for several left-wing publications, communist publications, Jewish publications, naming names. He named a cardinal in Chicago who had banned the Jews um, in... Um, I believe in Czechoslovakia. You know, he he had essentially dossiers. He had war crimes files from Nuremberg, and was not only a, a journalist but an, but an activist. You can see on the right there is a poster from a rally that he helped organize in 1963. There were three of them. One was in Brooklyn, I believe one was in L.A., and this one maybe Chicago. Um, and he led the rallying cry, and not only didn't it do any good, I mean, he's a hero, but he's sort of a Don Quixote hero, if you remember your literature, um, who was who was kind of tilting at windmills. Um, he not only didn't have much traction or success in drawing any attention to this problem, but the thanks he got from the U.S. government was that J. Edgar Hoover um, and the FBI wiretapped him and followed him for years because they believed he was a communist plant, since a lot of the information he was getting... Um, was coming from Soviet side files. A lot of the, war, the worst atrocities happened in what became part, parts of what became the Soviet Union. Those files were behind the Iron Curtain, and he was able to get those files. And of course, the U.S. people in the U.S. always say, oh, those are forged, that's just the communists, and he would find ways to document them and authenticate them. But the U.S. Um, you know, had a secret uh, espionage warrant out on him and made his life miserable for most of the, the 1960s and the 1970s. But I think without him, um, there never would have been a, uh, actions in Congress, at the Justice Department, throughout the country in the 1980s. He basically lit the, lit the fuse for that, and it took a, took a while to get there, um, but I think it was in large part thanks to, thanks to uh, Chuck Allen that there finally was some, some justice and, and some sense of morality. Uh, he he died uh, in the 1990s. Um, never had any real fame or recognition. You know, in, in left wing circles, he was known. Oh yeah, Chuck Allen. He's that digger. You know, he got all that stuff. But most people just sort of ignored him. So uh, the FBI left him alone by the end of his life. So I guess that was a good thing. So join me in a round of applause. Thank you very much.